This is IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your hosts, Radio Joe Hughes and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Good day and welcome to IAQ Radio Plus. This week is episode 636, and we welcome Dr. Joe Stebrook to talk about the life and times of the Dean of Building Science. Looking forward to a fun show today. Before we get started, we want to thank our sponsors. They are the reason we can continue doing the show. Our marquee sponsor is Instascope at instascope.co. Our association sponsors are the American Industrial Hygiene Association at AIHA.org, the American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienists at ACGIH.org, the Cleaning Industry Research Institute at CIRIScience.org, the Indoor Air Quality Association at IAQA.org, the Restoration Industry Association at RestorationIndustry.org, the Institute for Inspection, Cleaning, and Restoration Certification at IICRC.org, and Healthy Buildings America 2021 at HB2021-America.org. Industry sponsors are AEML Laboratories at AEMLINC.com, Particles Plus at ParticlesPlus.com. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions at graywolfsensing.com. TSI Inc. at tsi.com. Sunbelt Rentals at sunbeltrentals.com. April Air at aprilaire.com. And Healthy Indoors Magazine at healthyindoors.com. And now you can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to czlotnick at cs.com. Or if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now, here's the Z-Man. Hello, everyone. Congratulations go out to Philip Rauscher, Cincinnati, Ohio, who's first to identify 1946 as the year the ACGIH adopted its first list of 148 exposure limits, then referred to as maximum allowable concentrations. The IQ radio trivia question for today, August 13th, 2021, has been sponsored by TSI Inc., an industry leader in precision instrumentation for the monitoring of indoor air. Learn how to expand your IAQ investigations at TSI.com. Here's today's IAQ radio trivia question. Name the building-related, nonprofit, non-governmental organization established by the U.S. Congress in the Housing and Community Development Act of 1974, Public Law 93-383. Back to you, Joe. Thank you, Cliff. Dr. Joe Stebrook is the founding principal of the Building Science Corporation and an ASHRAE fellow. He's a building scientist who investigates building failures. His doctorate in building science engineering is from the University of Toronto. He's been a licensed professional engineer since 1982. The Wall Street Journal referred to him as the Dean of North American Building Science. Dr. Stebrook is an acclaimed educator and has taught thousands of professionals over the past four decades and has written countless papers Welcome, Joe. Great to have you back on the show. Well, thank you very much. It's 
uh, from one Joe to another. It's good to see you. Good to see you as well. Let's get let's get right into it, uh, Joe. How did you get started in the in the construction world back in the you know early days of uh, before I guess the first energy crisis? Well, my my father was a a, a home builder, and uh, um, I learned from him. He's also an aeronautical engineer, and uh, I of course was smarter than him. Right when you're a teenager, you're like <laughs> father, and and, uh, and I you know dad was clearly an idiot and I was smarter than him. And I, I went out on my own and, uh, you know, within two or three years, I realized my dad was a genius and I was the idiot. And, uh, I was, uh, uh putting my way through university. I was, uh, in aerospace, um, uh, uh, engineering physics at the university of Toronto and, uh, building homes on the side. And so it was, uh, I guess it was inevitable. I followed my dad's footsteps. He was, uh, in, in the aeronautical area. I went into aerospace and uh, we both ended up builders, and uh, I uh, admired and, and loved him and respected him at the end. But man, the early part, I thought, you know, come on, Dad, you know, that's stupid. Boy, was I wrong. <laughs> I, I, so, how how long did you stay in the construction industry? Well, you're still in it in one way or another. But well, I was I was a home builder for for three years, a serious home builder for three years, and I built thirty houses. Um, and they were, um, well, at the time, insanely high performance. And today they'd still be viewed as high performance houses. And I, I thought I really had it dialed in. And it turned out that I had some of it dialed in, but I didn't really know what I didn't know. And that's always a problem. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. Well, where does the term building science come from? You've turned it into something that everybody kind of recognizes but back then i don't think it was no i okay i i had no idea what building science was i um ended up at a at a home builders uh conference uh committee meeting and some old guy was talking about um under slab water vapor management and i disagreed with him and i like you know i said well that's that's ridiculous and 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 you know he had these glasses and he put his glasses down on his nose and looked at me and he said, young man, you need to go back to high school and relearn your high school physics before you can play in the big leagues here. And I was about to like yell at him and another old guy sitting behind me, put his hand on my shoulder and he gave me this look and he said, step outside. So I went outside in the hallway and, and uh, he said, come on, let, let's go upstairs. I'm going to share a drink with you and tell you some stories. And so I went upstairs, I didn't know this guy, and he introduced me to something called single malt scotch. And I'd never had a single malt scotch before. And he, and he says, um, my name is uh, John Timisk. I'm a professor of engineering and building science at the University of Toronto. And that guy that told you you needed to relearn your high school physics was Professor Gus Hanegord of the National Research Council of Canada. And he is one of the best who's ever lived. And he, he gave me... He just wrote this book. It's not officially published yet. It's it's loosely if I'm one of the reviewers here. And it's called it was called Building Science for a Cold Climate. And I mean, I was like stunned. I, I spent the whole night reading the book. It's now obviously a legend. And so um, you know, on the same night, um, I insulted one of the legends. Uh, was rescued by another one of the legends. Was given a pre-publication book of the legendary book by Hanegord. And then um, Hanegord and 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 uh, Timisk and I 
became lifelong friends. He, uh, uh, they were both my mentors. And uh, um, Gus <laughs> went and became the very first official speaker at, at summer camp. And so when he, uh, when he retired, um, oh, it's a funny story. I, I then, you know, knew that I didn't know stuff. And I, I he had a case studies class at, at the University of Toronto, Hanagord. And I took it eight years in a row. I took the same class eight years in a row. The university funds stop this. You, you, I keep paying you. You can't, we can't take your money. So, I mean, I can attend as a guest and not pay you. No wonder you guys are losing money. So when Gus couldn't take one of the classes, I would, I would fill in. And so when Gus finally retired and he donated all those papers to the University of Toronto, the, the part of the stipulation was that I had to take over teaching this class. So I inherited Professor Handigort's class at, when he retired. And so I still teach it today. So that was my introduction to building science uh, by insulting one of the greatest being uh, saved at the same time, but another one of the greatest. So that's how it started. I think we've got a photo of one of the greatest here. Uh, John, the, the group photo, can you put that up? There we yeah. go. Tell yeah. us about this one, Joe. All right. Well, that's when I was a home builder, and um, I'm the guy beside the guy without the, the shirt. Um, that's uh, James Lishkoff, who became a famous consulting engineer in Ontario. Um, the guy on my right hand is Professor John Tennis, and um, the young kid at the far end is uh, Chris Tennis, who's now a, a full professor at the university in, in, in Ontario. And we're actually building the world's first dynamic wall house. And uh, Professor Timmis couldn't get anybody to, to build it. And so I said, well, you know, Professor, you know, Jim and I will build it for you. So I went out and we framed the first dynamic wall house. This is in 1982. When you say dynamic wall, what, what, what do you mean by dynamic wall? Well, the idea was that... Uh, uh, Timisk wanted to turn the wall into a countercurrent heat exchanger by having a semi-air permeable material on the outside and operating the building under a slight negative pressure. Air would be pulled through the membrane and through the insulation system and it would be warmed up by the conductive heat and going in the opposite direction. So the idea is that you could get an infinite R value by simply picking up all of the air, all of the energy going outward by pulling it warming the air coming up inward then the issue is is that how do you establish the negative pressure and recover the energy that was done with uh, one of the world's first air source uh, heat pumps uh, with it which was part of the uh, energy exchange so it was like insanely elegant and it it, it worked about wasn't 100 percent it was about 60 percent efficient which is remarkable but um, it all became passe because um, you know, continuous exterior rigid insulation makes this unnecessary. And it, you know, you, it was really difficult to have uniform airflow around the interior gypsum board. So in other words, it was, it worked, but it wasn't ultimately practical. But man, it was real nice to learn. Uh, and it, it was like, to, to the day they both retired and died, I still remained young Joseph. So I, I qualify for Medicare, but I'm still young Joseph. And, and <laughs> young Joseph. Joe, let's, let's look at some of the other work you did back in the early days. Uh, John, you want to pull up a couple of those photos? Let's maybe walk us through this. This is 1979, and this is one of the first 
perfect wall houses. It's a, a water managed EIFS before they even know that there are significant problems with synthetic stucco. So this is a, a, a super insulated at the time, masonry wall insulated on the exterior with six inches of continuous rigid insulation with synthetic stucco. And it was insanely tight. Um, and we had to created my own blower door. It was just, but it was a, a fan in a window. And this was about two air changes per hour at 50 pascals in, 19, in 1979. And this was in um, uh, about four hours north of, uh, of, of Toronto, Ontario. And um, the reason I could get away with building is that they didn't have a building department. So I didn't have to get a building permit. <laughs> it freaked everybody out. You can't possibly do this. And so I did it because I could, and it was spectacular. The, the next image, if you punch it up. Good, John. That's the interior. So um, you're, we're taking an exterior split rib decorative block CMU and putting it on the inside and exposing it. That's the interior finish. That's the thermal mass. We've got the timbers. And then next image. Um, uh, a fluid applied uh, water control, air control, and vapor control layer. That's the black. And then over the outside of that is uh, uh, eight inches of expanded polystyrene. So the next image. So there's you know, insanely super insulated, right? Um, mass to the interior. Um, the best windows at the time were, believe it or not, double glazed, but we had interior storms. So we basically made a triple glazed window, which wasn't available in 1979. Uh, next, next image. That's the insulation. We had to figure out a way of attaching it. So long, long screws with plastic washers and a plug and man it was it was it was awesome um and i built um 30 of them over three years and only lost about a half a million dollars and <laughs> one of the one of the jokes of the day was that you know cheap famous home builders asked well what would you do if you won the million dollar lottery and his answer was well i'd probably keep on building until it was all gone <laughs> and uh, I got out of business, um, I had to, interest rates went to, you know, 20, 21% in the industry. Yeah. And so I was uh, without a job and uh, got hired as the youngest ever director of research of the Canadian Homeowners Association. And I developed mm -hmm. the R2000 program. And the reason that I got hired, I was one of the only people that knew about ultra energy efficiency in a cold climate. And so I was like, you know, 26, 27 years old. And I didn't know, but I knew Handegord and I knew Timisk. And they kept my story butt out of trouble. Now, I'm curious, how did you heat these? Um, this one was, believe it or not, was heated with a wood stove. Okay. <laughs> I believe it. We, uh, we needed combustion air. Duh. You know, you're... This house was tighter than a Scotsman in a bar, and I needed to have air come in because it was important not to kill people. Yeah. Yeah. How'd you pull that off? Put a hole in the wall, connected a duct to it, and ran the duct to the underside of the wood stove. Yeah. Gotcha. Duct did make up there. Hey, I was, yeah. an I was an aerospace engineer. I knew this airflow stuff. Yeah. <laughs> hey. Let's go back. I want to show today's what you call the perfect wall, no longer the dynamic wall, I guess, but the perfect wall. Let's take a look at that. Well, 
okay, so for the record, I did not come up with this. All I did was take a 1953-1954 black and white image and add colors to it. I'm the Ted Turner of building science. I colored up this old stuff. This was put together by Professor Neil Hutchin, and Hutchin was Gus Hanegord's mentor. So my mentor's mentor came up with this. And basically, it's the structure. The black lines are the water control, air control, vapor control layer. The blue line is the thermal control layer. And the reason it's blue in this image is because Dow paid me to make it blue. <laughs> it's pink in another image, and that's from Owens Corning. And then the vomit orange is rock wool. So, you know, the color of that layer is going to tell you who was paying me at the time to do the presentation. And gotcha. then uh, a back ventilated and drained um, cladding. Now, I couldn't figure out why this wasn't catching on. And so I named it the perfect wall. And it caught on. And so pe people say, well, Stiebrick invented the perfect wall. Well, no, Stiebrick coined the phrase the perfect wall. And he basically took a 1950s concept, added colors to it and said, look, this is the way it should be. So it wasn't, this was figured out before even I was born. Right. But, you know, wow. we don't, people don't read old stuff. People certainly don't know what works and what doesn't work. Um, and just a little background, I, I spend most of my time dealing with failures. I never get a call saying, Joe, things are going great. Come on, let's have a beer. I get the call. The vampires are coming. It's the end of the world. They're taking my family. You got to save my sorry ass. And so um, if it's failures, and failures turn out to be more educational than successes. And I, I like to point out that, um, yep, Failure has made me the man that I am today. <laughs> Go to the next slide, John, real quick. This want to kind of this is a little more detailed, Joe. Well, yeah, this is uh, um, this is my ver this is the perfect wall. Um, all I did in the my houses, and I didn't know I was building the perfect wall, was I just put the stucco directly on uh, the blue layer, and I made the blue layer uh, thicker. And I had drainage because of the mechanic. I didn't appreciate that I had drainage between the back of the foam and the, and the water control layer because of the attachment methods. And so I ended up with a water managed synthetic stucco before people knew that face sealed synthetic stucco wouldn't work. So, I mean, I was one of my big predictions was before the synthetic stucco industry went to crap, I, you know, it was like the babe calling the shot, you know, saying, the industry is going to fail. I, I knew it was going to fail because when I didn't have that water control layer and I didn't integrate with the windows, I had to fix the damn buildings. And so I screwed up first. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, somebody had to learn those mistakes, you know, learn from those mistakes early on, Joe. I, I, another thing I think we learned from was the, the first energy crisis that came about. And then, you know, people started tightening up buildings, trying to save on the, you know, oil and gas going, prices going crazy. You were part of that. What, uh, tell us a little bit about the mistakes we made during that time and, and why they were made. Well, you had activists and people who don't understand physics. Let me, let me explain something. We're doing the same stuff incorrectly now. And what happens is that politics trumps physics. Am I allowed to use the word trumps? Politics Obama's physics, beginning, <laughs> but physics wins at the end. And so we ended up doing all kinds of stupid stuff. And I pointed out that 
with Gus's help, but I was made the mistake of speaking publicly. I said, look, there's no such thing as a free thermodynamic launch. If we add all of this insulation, we're going to reduce the energy flow, which is yay. Okay. But energy flow had provided the ability for the assembly to dry. So when we insulated up the wazoo, which is a metric term, it's two yin yangs. We ended up dramatically reducing the ability of an assembly to dry. So to stay in moisture balance, we had to reduce the wetting potential. So we had to change the way we installed all of our windows and doors and did all of our flashings and whatever. And, and people were not wanting to hear that. And so I kept saying, look, you don't understand. You're gonna, we're going to rot thousands upon thousands of houses. And oh, by the way, these houses are heated with you know, oil furnaces. And if we tighten them up, people are going to die from carbon monoxide poisoning. And you can imagine how popular that was when this, you know, youngster at the time saying houses are going to rot and people are going to die. Well, I, I was, I was blacklisted. I, I lost my job. I got fired because I testified a coroner's inquest from a family that died. I, I, I lost the, my job the day my daughter was born. That was a real exciting thing. And wow. I ended up, I ended up um, out of work. My wife left me. I couldn't see the kids. Um, living in my mom's basement, driving a rusted out Ford Tempo. But it turned out that I ended up being correct. Um, and so I, you know, I didn't give up. My dad kept saying to me, he says, you know, come on, Joey. By the way, he was the only one that could call me Joey. You call me Joey, Joe, I'm, you're dead. Okay. <laughs> I won't do that. My mother calls me Joey too. <laughs> he says, look, you know, I was a, I fought in the Second World War. I lived through the Depression. I was shot down twice. I fought the communists. I had to escape behind the Iron Curtain. And you're whining a little bit because they're annoyed at you because you're arguing about some physics. Suck it up, Joey. Don't give up. And um, I didn't. Uh, it was hard for a while. Um, I ended up working in the United States because nobody would hire me in Canada. And uh, so I ended up in Chicago and uh, um, developed the first spillage and backdrafting tests and then um, did a call-in show called House Mender Does House Calls with a guy by the name of Jim LaRue out of Cleveland, where I was explained to everybody, well, here, look, if you add all of this cellulose insulation into these uninsulated walls, the paint falls off. And the paint falls off simply because not the cellulose is wet, it's that the walls are always getting wet from capillarity from the outside. And it always dried out because of the escaping energy. <clears throat> what happened was, is that the insulation reduced the energy flow, reduced the drying potential, the wall stays wetter, and the paint fell off. That was my first real technical paper. Insulation-induced paint and siding problems, and it was selected to be represent Canada's paper at a huge international conference. And I couldn't afford to go, so Hannah Gordon Timmis paid my airfare so I could present the paper. And at the end of the paper, you know, Timus waves at me and I go to the hotel room attached to the conference. And in the room is Gus Hanegord with a glass of scotch. He gets to me and he says, well, young man, you finally learned your high school physics. <laughs> I started crying. You know, I was, you know, that was, that was when I was officially part of the club. And, and so then, you know, then I, I started getting more and more work, but, uh, in the United States, not in Canada. I, I didn't, I really didn't, you know, it broke my heart. 
um, I couldn't, you know, these people were mad at me because I, I said polyethylene vapor barriers are going to be a problem. This insulation is going to rot your houses and I'm, you know, you're going to have air quality issues. And I said, look, I'm, a, I'm an engineer. I have a genetic defect. I believe in efficiency, but you don't want to make people sick and you don't want to kill the house. So we can have all of this, but it's not as easy. And, 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 and stop listening to these people with PowerPoints who, you know, wave their hands around and think that they know about the physics. That's just not the way it works. That was not a popular message. So guess what? Now, you know, green, right? It's easy, right? And there's the COVID stuff. It's easy. We're just going to increase the humidity and ventilate. And I'm going to say you have no freaking idea what that's going to do. And, you know, I, uh, I, I like to describe myself as, remember that television show in the 60s, Rocky and Bullwinkle? And oh, yeah. At the end of the show, the credits, you show that old guy with the mustache sweeping up the elephant pit after the parade. That's, that's what I do. I'm, after the parade is over and the elephants are shit all over everything, I'm cleaning up the mess. And you know the mess is coming. And you try to warn them. And, you know, you you, you got you to gotta go through it. So we're going to go through stupid stuff. Do you realize what 40 to 50% relative humidity is going to do to houses and, and buildings in the cold climate, right? You realize yeah. how difficult it's going to be when you want to double your ventilation rate for, for COVID. So you're going to have to buy humidifiers in the north, dehumidifiers in the south, ERVs, and you're going to have to figure out materials that can tolerate being wet. Good luck with that. And so- wow. I want to retire. I can't. Come on. <laughs> Jeez. So, so I'm, I'm going to look, we, we figured out after the first energy crisis what to do, but it took almost 20 years. Um, we're going to learn faster with this mess, but we're going to end up doing stupid stuff first. And we've already got code changes coming that are you know, like, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm, this is done by activists who've never done anything. They don't have to live with the consequences of their stupid decisions. And I, I like to point out now that I'm a full-fledged American, one of my heroes is Winston Churchill. And he said, Americans can always be counted upon to do the right thing after all of the alternatives have been exhausted. So we're going to do all the stupid stuff and then get it right. But that's the way we do it. John, let's go back. I want to show that picture from uh, Cleveland. Yeah, there we go. Just this is a, a younger version of uh, Dr. Joe here. And uh, tell us a little bit about what, what was going on here, Joe. Well, I, um, Gus said, young Joseph, you understand how the inside of a wall works. You have no idea about the outside. You ought to go to someplace like Cleveland or Pittsburgh, and they're having all kinds of paint problems. Go figure out what's going on. And so I didn't know. So I drove to, I drove to Cleveland and I met, uh, kind of a church going guy who does LaRue, uh, who did all kinds of stuff with low income housing. And he did a, a Callan show and I did a, a guest hosted and I slept on his couch and I said, I want to look at peeling paint. Anybody got any peeling paint? And we get like a thousand, <laughs> a thousand notes. And so I spent the next eight months every weekend driving from my mother's basement because my, my, I was now broken living by myself um, again and looking at paint problems. And that led to 
the insulation induced paint and siding paper that got me that award and, and, you know, got Gus to tell me that I'd finally learned my high school physics. So here I am taking cellulose out of a wall that had peeling paint and the building had been, was 20 years old, no paint problems at all. And then they blew it with cellulose. The paint fell off the next year and the, the pattern became pretty obvious. And I said, well, my God, this is, this is awesome. Somebody should write it up. So I did. And that's, that was me. And uh, my God, I was 30 years old. Wow. When, when did the Building Science Corporation start? Um, 19, 1989 in uh, Chicago. And okay. uh, I, uh, um, you're going to laugh, but I, with the Canada-U.S. Free Trade Agreement just passed, I needed to be able to figure out a way to work in the United States. And the only way that it would work is if there was an American company that hired me. And at the time I was dating an American immigration attorney who was working on the free trade agreement. And she said, incorporate a company in Chicago and then write a letter to invite you to work for it. And so I incorporated a company. (laughs) I called it building science corporation because why not? I wrote my, wrote myself a letter of employment. And when the free trade agreement passed at midnight, uh, one minute after midnight, I was at the Sarnia U.S. Port Huron border. And I was literally the first person that got admitted. And I had this pair, you know, this letter of employment that had five things on it. And they called me in and they're on the phone to the people in, in, in Washington. And they're like, okay, it needs to have four things. And of course, I numbered them one, two, three, and four. Because <laughs> I knew what the agreement was going to be. And so I drove off to Chicago. And, 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 and so Building Science Corp started in 1989 in Chicago. Well, I'd never heard that before, Joe. Hey, we've got to stop and thank our sponsors. We'll be back in two minutes with the second half of our interview with Dr. Joe Stebra. Our marquee sponsor, Instascope. More jobs done faster with the future of IAQ assessment technology, unlimited samples, instant results, and cloud-based data at instascope.co. Our association sponsors are AIHA, Healthy Workplaces, A Healthier World, at AIHA.org. ACGIH, Advancing Careers of Professionals in Environmental Health, Industrial Hygiene, and Safety, Interested in defining their science at acgih.org. The Cleaning Industry Research Institute. See more deeply through science and research at cirisciences.org. The Indoor Air Quality Association. Promoting the exchange of indoor environmental quality information through education and research at iaqa.org. The Restoration Industry Association, the granddaddy of the restoration industry, network with leaders at restorationindustry.org. The IICRC, a nonprofit standards development and certifying body for the cleaning and restoration industry at iicrc.org. And Healthy Buildings America 2021 in Honolulu, Hawaii, November 9 through 11 at hb2021-america.org. 
IAQ Radio industry sponsors are AEML Laboratories, free shipping, great pricing, same-day results with no rush fee at AEMLINC.com. Particles Plus, feature-rich particle counters and air quality instrumentation. Count on us at ParticlesPlus.com. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, over 20 years manufacturing accurate, reliable IAQ instrumentation for portable, short-term, and continuous monitoring at graywolfsensing.com. TSI Inc., an industry leader in precision instrumentation for monitoring indoor air. Learn how to expand your IAQ investigations at tsi.com. Sunbelt Rentals, availability, reliability, and ease. For all your IAQ and restoration needs at sunbeltrentals.com. April Air, healthy air, healthy home at aprilaire.com. And Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online magazine for industry professionals and consumers at healthyindoors.com. All right, we're back with the second half of our interview. Dr. Joe Stebrook, Cliff, I want to turn it over to you for the next question. Thanks, Joe. Uh, Joe, um, looking back over your illustrious career, um, what single best piece of building science advice did you get and who gave it to you? Oh, man, that was uh, was pretty easy. Um, Gus Hanegard, he said, young Joseph, the three biggest problems in buildings are water, water, and water. (laughs) (laughs) problems in buildings are water water and water and um of the three biggest problems which are water 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 the single most important one is rain and groundwater if you can't handle rain and you can't handle groundwater nothing else matters and that was the biggest single piece of advice that i ever got and that's the piece of advice that i i give to everybody else it was funny i I was invited to be a keynote speaker at, at uh, ABBA, the Air Barrier Association of America. Uh, and I, I told them they should have been called WABA, the Water Barrier Association of America before ABBA, that you know all of their air barriers are really water control layers that have an air control function added and that the water control function is way more important than the air control function. But that, 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 came, from, that, came, that came from young, it came from old Gus to young Joseph. Joe, let's go back. You So you started Building Science Corp in Chicago. You ended up in Westford, Massachusetts. A lot's happened between then. Um, can, you, can you tell us a little bit more about the early days of Building Science Corp? Well, okay. Nobody would hire me. <laughs> I, I couldn't even speak at conferences. They were, I was literally blacklisted. And so I started organizing my own conferences. So, you know, if you, if you sons of bitches aren't going to let me present, I'm going to have my own conference. And so I got into doing seminars. And so the seminar business started simply because, and training started because I couldn't get, I couldn't get work and I couldn't get invited to conferences. I mean, I was literally thrown out of the first EBA conference in Rochester, Minnesota. Um, I developed something called the uh, air drywall approach and I wanted to present it and it was accepted at first at Sesky. Yeah, Solar Energy Society of Canada in, 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 in Vancouver. And then they dropped me and said, we're not 
you, you, you're, you're, you're too, dis, you're too disruptive. And so, you know, Timus bought me a plane ticket, flew me out. We rented a room next to the convention and I presented it to 50 people in my hotel room. <laughs> so I presented the damn paper anyway. Wow. And, and, and so uh, it was, it was, it was pretty brutal. And, and, uh, People say, well, gee, you know, Joe doesn't like to fly. That's why he drives everywhere. That was crap. I couldn't afford a plane ticket. I had to buy <laughs> The only credit card I had was a Shell credit card. And so, you know, driving a rusted out Ford Tempo 14 hours to do a presentation in Atlanta at a session I've arranged myself because nobody would freaking invite me. I had to do it that way because I had no, but then, you know, I started, you know, people started saying, well, wait a minute, he fixed this and he fixed that and he fixed this. And this is going to sound really weird, but the breakthrough happened. I, I, my big passion besides drinking wine is skiing. And I've been, I was a ski patroller for 25 years. And the reason I was a patroller is I couldn't afford lift tickets. So I, joined, I lied about my age when I was 17 and joined the patrol and I became overtime director of Alpine Rescue. But, um, I would drive from my mother's basement to Aspen 24 hours by car wow. to sleep illegally down Valley in a parking lot and ski the next day. And the reason that I would go to Aspen is because they were the only big resort in the United States that had reciprocity with the Canadian ski patrol. So if I could get my ass to Aspen, they'd give me a lift ticket. And so <laughs> it was, it was, it was awesome. And so, one day, and I, I would occasionally give a class to Colorado Mountain College. There's a crazy guy by the name of uh, Johnny Weiss and another legend. And I would teach classes. And so the idea is that, hey, you can sleep on my couch, Joe, not in the parking lot anymore, but you got to teach a class. And then I would go ski two days and I'd drive home. I would do this once a month. And so one day I'm, I'm skiing and, and it's miserable, miserable, disgusting. It was like, Ice fog and was, there was nobody on the hill and I'm skiing something called a run called Ruthie's. And I'm the only person on it except this insanely good babe, female skier. And she's just, you know, and I'm, I'm doing everything I can to try to catch her or keep up with her. And after three top to bottoms, you know, she stops at the bottom of the, of the lift. And uh, she's talking to the lift operator and, and they're both laughing as I come up. Right. And cause there's nobody else. And she says, I figured if I didn't stop, you'd kill yourself. Come on, get on the lift <laughs> and, and tell me your story. And so I'm going up the lift and I says, well, I'm an engineer and I investigate building failures. I can't tell you how unbelievably stupid architects are. Who are you? I'm an architect. <laughs> but are you that guy that's been teaching Johnny Weiss's class? And I said, yeah. And I says, well, we've been real busy. I'm with, there were, there was, she was with a big firm called Hagman Yaw Architects at the time. We got a big project coming up. After skiing today, you want to drop by and, and, and tell us a little bit about stuff. And so I had my Kodak carousel, you know, slides, remember that? And, yeah. and I went in and I talked about unvented, vented roofs, uh, continuous insulation, rain screen, condition crawl spaces, condensation dew point, balanced ventilation. And they said, wow, this is kind of cool. 
what would it cost for you to do a design review? And I said, you know, $2 a square foot, figuring it's a 2,000 square foot house, right? And she says, okay, thank you. So I drive back to Toronto, a month goes by, and I get a roll of drawings that's like this big, like it's unbelievable. Wow. And I, 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 call, I call them up and I say, are you, are you, are you serious? This, this is a house? This is, this is 50,000 square feet or more. He says, no, it's 66,000 square feet, not counting the 4,000 square foot guest house. Is your fee still good? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> that, that one thought, I said, whose house is this? He says, well, you we can't tell you. And I knew right away. So I said, it's the prince's house, isn't it? It's Prince Bandar. He was the Saudi Arabian ambassador to the United States at the time. And so I, I did Bandar's residence. Uh, and he had, you know, super insulated roof, no ice stands. He had triple glazed windows. It was just, it was just perfect. And on that job, uh, the part-time building official taxi driver, Steve Knipe, was, you know, asking all these questions. So he's just a taxi driver. Well, he's became a lifelong friend, and he now is the chief building official for Aspen, Pitkin County. The builder was a guy who drove a rusted-up pickup truck from Indiana. His name is Steve Hansen. He's become the most successful home builder in Colorado. And they, you know, they became lifelong friends. And so, you know, this Bandar thing allowed me to stay in business. So I meet this beautiful architect that you are, are aware of. I'll tell you that story in a minute. And we're working out of her basement in Boston. And this guy with a very, very, very heavy Japanese accent calls me up and pick, I'm talking on the phone. And I said, you know, you need to come out to Hawaii right away. And I thought it was a joke. And I said, you know, screw up. You know, I don't have time for this kind of shit. And I hung up. Well, okay. About an hour goes by and I get a call saying, uh, Mr. Stebrick, I wasn't a doctor yet. Uh, Mr. Stebrick, this is the Consul General's Office of Canada calling from the office in Boston, and you've caused an international incident. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that gentleman that you hung up on was Yoshida Toyota of Toyota Motor Company. Ooh. I said, why the hell? How would, he, how would he know to call me? Well, his good friend, the prince, Prince Bandar, recommended you. <laughs> And I'm like, how, how did they find me? This well, Toyota called the National Research Council of Canada. They want to know some Canadian who skis in Aspen who knows buildings. Everybody freaking knows you, so they gave him your name. And so I went off and I did uh, uh, Toyota's house. It was the first unvented conditioned attic in a hot, humid climate. His neighbor was Charles Schwab, so I did Schwab's house. The other was Colbert, Kravitz, and Roberts. And so... All of a sudden, I'm doing rich people's houses all over the world. And they also give money to hospitals and museums. Well, what are the most screwed up buildings on the planet from a moisture and physics perspective? Hospitals and museums. Yeah. So the hospital and museum business because I was skiing a miserable day with Heidi Hoffman in, in Aspen. And that turned my career around. Wow. All right. I've got a, I've got a sentence I want you to finish here. Um, an architect and an engineer walk into a bar. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So um, I'm doing one of my sessions in Marlboro, Massachusetts, and there are like 35 people in the room, and it's a two-day session. And I spend the entire morning 
just tearing the butts out of architects. You know, I can't believe how stupid they are and screwing stuff up and, and, and whatever. And so at lunch, of course, I, I work the room. You go to every table, you know, because I'm the host as well as the presenter. And, and there are, there's you know, only one woman in the entire class. And um, I look at her and, and she's, I'm at the, the table and she looks at me and she says, you know, you'd be all right if you weren't such an asshole. Um, you must be an architect. And she says, as a matter of fact, I am. And I said, so maybe dinner's out of the question. And she said, maybe not. <laughs> that was Betsy Pettit. And we've been together for all, over 30 years. So I, I met her. And the reason that she came was that she was in charge of fixing the EIFS, external insulation finished buildings that were all rotted as part rotting and failing as a result of mass housing. And she was in charge of fixing it. One of my buzz lines in the prom promo was the fundamental, fundamental flaw of the IFS. And we, we became obviously business partners and we have had a magnificent, wonderful relationship. And she's an awful lot smarter than me. And so she lowered her standards to be with me. I married up, she married down. What can I tell you? That's that's great, Joe. That is fantastic. Right, let's let's talk a little bit about summer camp. How did the idea of summer camp come about? When did it start? Well, we moved into our new house, which was an 1880s house that was more or less falling down. And um, old people who I respected were beginning to die. And I said, my God, you know, um, we need to pass on the information and we had had Betsy and I had now a couple of employees and we're sort of saying to ourselves what's going to cost you know a couple of thousand dollars maybe five six thousand dollars to send our people to a you know to a course at a at a conference like an ebook conference or an ashray conference or something and I said well they're, they're, they suck I mean people only speak for 20 minutes and the real action happens in the hallway or at bars where you get to talk to people. And this is, this is nuts. Um, and I figured, I said, well, why don't I get the smartest guy I know? Uh, why don't I get Handegord? And I, I call up Gus and I said, what could you teach? Could you teach us everything that you know in three days and what would it cost? And he said, there's no way I can teach you everything I know in three days. I can teach you only everything I think you folks can absorb in three days, and it's going to be 10,000 bucks. And I said, okay. So I had five grand. I needed to get another five grand. So I sent out, um, you're going to love this. I sent out 10 letters saying, Handegor's going to speak at our place for three days. Can you cough up 500 bucks? I got 20 checks back. I'm like, wow. Okay. So the first morning, um, I'm saying, look, this is not meant to be a profit. I was just supposed to, you know, break even. What if I um, give you back half of your money? And he says, you're nuts. You know how difficult it was to get money out of our company? They have no <laughs> idea how they're going to get it back. Somebody yelled it up, spend it on food and booze, food and booze. And I said, okay, okay. So I go off at lunch and I buy all kinds of stuff and, Everybody comes back to our house. That means you know, 20 people, right? And I'm grilling and drinking and having a good time. 
And this guy walks up to me and he says, you're, you're, you're screwing this up. This is you're, you're, you're drunk. The food's falling into the ground. You're burning the food. You're, this, you're, you're, you're a freaking embarrassment. And I said, you could do better. He says, anybody could do better. I said, here, here's my credit card. Take over. And, you know, the next day uh, we have dinner again and it's this insane spread of absolutely freaking magnificent food. It was just like, you're kidding. And people were just, and that guy that did that, his name is Pete Consigli. There he is. Wow. There he is. So at the end of the third day, uh, you know, everybody's just overwhelmed with Gus's presentation, overwhelmed with, with Pete's cooking skill and his sense of humor and, and the interaction and, and everybody was together and you got to do this again. So the next year I invited the best European by the name of Hugo Hens. And um, I invited the same 20 people. Well, I got 50 people. And so Pete couldn't cook just by himself with 50 people with one of the people that was attending was Jack Springston. Remember Jack? Oh yeah. Jack put himself through university as a short order cook. So yep. and Springston were cooking. The trouble was it went from 50 people to 500 people. And so our 23rd summer camp, this is a picture of 500 people in my backyard. And we went from cooking in my, uh, our kitchen, I, I ended up building a, a commercial kitchen for, there it is, for Pete and Jack and crew. So <laughs> it's used four days a year. Consigli was a legend. And uh, I, you know, it, it was, it, it grew out of, you know, you're getting old and you're going to die. You got to tell us everything before you die. So then the joke was, well, you only get invited to speak at summer camp if you're old and you're going to die soon. And so then we had to, <laughs> and and it, it's kind of neat. The the folks that present are are freaked out, right? They it's incredible pressure, right? And I'm trying to tell you, look, it was relax. It's just you don't understand. These are the greatest people in the world. I can't screw up. And you know, I mean, they're calm down. It's okay. And so uh, we have become a it's become a wonderful, wonderful cult. I can't tell you. The presentations have been spectacular. Some have been world premiere. We one of the guys. A uh, famous guy uh, would come in and he would just sit down and start playing at the piano. And he was a, he was a dead ringer for uh, uh, Steve Martin. He looked Steve Martin. Him. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Like Steve Martin. And, and so he, he was a dead ringer and he started playing and people would come up to him and say, are you that guy? <laughs> are you, and he says, I'm, of course I'm that guy. And so people say, well, how did, how did Joe Steeper get Steve Martin to play a piano at summer camp? It wasn't, he was, it was, um, Steve, it was, uh, um, um, very, very famous glazing consultant who did the investigation of why the glass fell out of the Hancock building. And uh-huh. so summer camp number three, he bursts in, in the middle of the presentation and says, the, the non-disclosure has been lifted. I can tell the truth. I can tell the truth. I can tell the truth. And so it was the world premiere, first time in public, where the actual failure of what happened in uh, the Hancock building was released um, publicly. And there were like four people in the class that were part of the litigation. And they're saying, really, we can talk about this? It was just, that was magic or spectacular. And then 
know, our, my, my favorite presenter, Mac Pierce, um, he presented twice and he got standing ovations and, and un, unbelievable. It was my favorite picture of him. He's holding a bottle of Sasakaya and which was my favorite wine of all time. And, and what a, what an amazing, I miss him. He passed recently and what a, what a legend, but we've, we've had everybody, well, everybody that I, not yet, but we want everybody. You're getting there, Joe. You're getting there for sure. Hey, let's let's go to the. I don't know. Can you stick around an extra five, ten minutes? Or I have I have no friends, so I'm happy. To <laughs> well, then let's keep on. I, I want to keep on a little bit. I want to get to some some current events here. Um, let's start with code. You, you've been trying to change code for many many years. Uh, how long have you been trying to change code? And, and what was the biggest thing you got? change that you're that you're proud of well i've been in the code making since i guess 1999 2000 when uh, i was whining about how stupid the codes were and uh, a woman by the name of shirley munns came up to me and said well you know why don't you freaking change it why don't you get involved you know stop whining and complaining you know you know get your and so wow okay that was put me in my place and I learned the code making thing, and, and so my uh, my proudest was that I changed all of the requirements for vapor barriers throughout uh, the United States. So that was change number one. You don't have to have a vapor barrier if you meet these other requirements. Next change was I changed everything with respect to vented and unvented roofs in all climates. Next change was vented, unvented conditioned crawl spaces. So conditioned crawl spaces, conditioned attics, vapor barriers. All, all, all work that I managed to get in, and it wasn't easy. Uh, the most of these code changes take three cycles, so nine years. So you know, <laughs> this is I'm dealing with the 2023 code, and, and the 2021 just got whatever. We've got changes coming, and I've, I've, and simple stuff takes freaking forever. I, I all I want now is to have return air allowed out of, out of basically closets. Do you have any idea how difficult to get a simple change like that is? I mean, they had people yelling at me and calling me names and, you know, whatever it's, it's, it ain't easy, but those were um, some of my, well, those were a big deal. Yes, sir. Absolutely. I, the crawl space thing I think is, has changed a whole lot of people's uh, thoughts and uh, solved a lot of problems for people too, because that was, that's just huge. Uh, but they're still doing it wrong too, Joe. I don't know how, but. <laughs> oh yeah. I just want you to know that there's always going to be somebody that's going to say, well, you did this wrong and they probably did, but there's always something somebody else says, well, if you did it this way, this might be better. And you'd be surprised at how much I've learned from younger people who refuse to be told they can't do stuff. They remind me of me, and that's how you break boundaries. And I'm, I uh, love listening to people who keep getting told you can't possibly do that, and then they go ahead and do it, and it works. And I'm saying, yeah, okay, I got your back on this. I did it. Hey, there's another big event that occurred recently with the collapse of a building in down in the southeast Florida, which was just terrible, devastating issue. I wonder if you could comment on that, and and also if if you think we should be worried that there's going to be other building collapses. Well, the when I saw the video, 
and there's some really good videos. The structural engineering group is, they're all over this, but the first thing I thought of was um, the parking garage failures and collapses we have in Ontario, and we had in, in Ontario in the 1990s, and the bridge corrosion, and we had a, a shopping mall in, in North Bay, Ontario, that collapsed because of salt water corrosion. Um, we, in cold climates, we put salt on the roads, right? And the cars carry the salts into the parking garage and the bridges, and the corrosion weakens the steel and it causes it to, to fail. And I'm thinking right off the bat, this is, you know, salt water corrosion. My spidey sense is tingling. And then, you know, I'm, I'm not involved in this, by the way, okay? I'm, I'm not, I'm, and I'm, this is total speculation, but the first thing I thought of was, by God, this reminds me of bridges and parking garage failures in Ontario, all right? So that mm-hmm. second thing was that I'm following this, and this is, well, you know, the, the pool deck is dead flat, and there was no water management. And I'm like, and then I, I found out a little bit other stuff and the collapse seems to have started uh, where there's a, a planter located uh, at a at where the wall at the pool deck meets an extra, uh, in, uh, one of the walls. And I'm, you know, in the stuff that we do, waterproofing planters on, on, on decks is, that's, you know, so if I was, if anybody ever asked me and said, hey, uh, Joe, I'd probably look at the water management issues at the, at the planters and just take that off the table or not. But, you know, I, I can't, to this day, we have arguments saying that we don't need to slope our deck. And I'm saying, well, that's crazy. Our waterproofing system is so freaking good, it can be dead flat. And I'm saying, don't be a dope slope. That's our motto. Don't be a freaking dope slope. And, and uh, inspect like crazy. And so this is going to change things and there are going to be others. All right. There are going to be others. Wow. That's let's go to the roundup, John. The roundup is brought to you by April air providing healthy humidity, ventilation and air purity solutions to new and existing homes. April air. Healthy air, healthy home at aprilaire.com. All right, let's go to the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. Final questions or thoughts for Dr. Joe? Yeah, uh, Joe, um, you, you talked about uh, mistakes and looking back on things. Uh, looking back on COVID reaction, what do you think were the biggest mistakes made? I think people, like I the mask thing, it was ridiculous, all right? And if you know anything about aerosol transfer, um, anybody who knows anything about that could tell you right off the bat. And that it took so long for people to even accept that aerosols were the transmission mechanism. It's like, I am not a health professional, but I do know the difference between Newton's law and Stokes law and viscosity and falling velocities, and come on. Now, if I was in charge, which apparently I'm not, um, I would um, improve the filtration and have much higher room air change, but not with outside, just more circulation and filtration. 
And I think um, you're crazy to increase the humidity uh, to 40 or 50% as a retrofit. You're gonna end up having to build new stuff that's able to handle that level of humidity. And if you are gonna double your ventilation rate and want that level of humidity in a cold climate, you're gonna need a humidifier. And I view humidifiers as biological weapons. They're bio weapons. And then in the South, uh, you're gonna need um, dehumidifiers and all over you're gonna need energy recovery ventilators. So I would invest in April Air and a humidifier company that makes whatever infiltration. But apparently I'm just a dumb schmuck engineer living in Boston. Jump in here, Mr. Consigli. The restoration industry's global watchdog, Pete Consigli, and chef, executive chef, I should say. (laughs) Well, executive chef emeritus, uh, Mr. Paul Lagrange from Baton Rouge, now has taken over the uh, summer camp uh, cooking duties and doing a wonderful job. You know, this was to be our 25th anniversary year, so... uh, I got a kick when Joe had to send the cancellation notice out two years in a row now. He put in there, next year will be epic. Epic. And I was thinking the money plus bin, you know? <laughs> so maybe he's going to, it's going to be summer camp on steroids for the, uh, for the 25th one. So I got a couple little things to add, you know, um, uh, it, it, Joe's kind of entry into the restoration industry and all the, help and the training and stuff that he's passed on to our guys over the years is really is pretty legendary him and Mac Pierce are the for the 15 20 years that they presented and worked with with the restoration guys they were at RAA they were the two most popular and high rated speakers that I can ever remember in the last you know quarter quarter of a century but but um the way we found me and Cliff found Joe heard about him were two of our Joe did a seminar out in Seattle when he was doing his sem- early seminar days and two of our members out there, it was either Seattle or Port and Reed Dow and Mark Bradley had told us, they said, you know, there's this guy out there is really pretty wild. And he talks about all kinds of stuff. I think would be helpful for, you know, all the, the, the restoration and drying guys. So we said, well, where can we see him? And then he, he was teaching it at the Merck, the, you know, the famous Merck with Sue Smith in the science center, Philadelphia. So me and Cliff and a couple other guys registered for four days that week. We, we heard Joe for two days. And, um, and then we had, uh, uh, that's when we met Chin Yang and uh, Phil Morey, I think, and um, uh, Paul Ellinger. So we listened to all this stuff for four days. It was pretty enlightening to us. And I remember, I remember Joe coming and telling us that, like, we, we were, I guess we were kind of disruptive. You know, I think this is the reason why Joe kind of, you know, like uh, lend it to kind of like these restoration guys because he could relate to us. So Sue Smith uh, went to Joe and said, uh, I, I remember Joe told me this, like in the morning of day two, she said, who are those restoration guys? She says, we're getting all kinds of complaints and everything. They're disruptive. And I said, what did you tell the Joe? And Joe goes, yeah, aren't they great? <laughs> you can't make this stuff up. So at that point, we decided that we wanted through the association to hire Joe to do a couple of seminars for the members. And we, we did two back in the mid nineties. Uh, we did a two day one in Chicago and then a two day one out in Orange County and Costa Mesa. And I, and I remember, um, uh, you know, things were a little bit more formal in those days, not like business casual. 
So, you know, Joe used to put those seminars on and be wearing jeans and kind of an open T-shirt or something, whatever, you know, he, he got that day. And we, we had to ask him in, in the agreement to wear a shirt and tie. And uh, anyway, he shows up at the first one in Chicago day when wearing the shirt and tie. He looks so uncomfortable. It's unbelievable. You know, by the first break, he loosened the tie. By, by the, after lunch, he has the jacket off. And finally, we told him, you know, Joe, yeah, yeah, the hell with the suit for day two. And anyway, and he was a lot more comfortable and he kind of went went from there. And, uh, you know, and that led to really a long and beautiful relationship for many years. Uh, and that's how the kind of the restoration guys got involved in building science. And now, you know, for many years, it's really a mainstay of our training and all of our certification. To, to, it's a basic prerequisite. Um, as far as summer camp is concerned, my, I, I have my favorite Joe line. Now, Joe has a lot of lines, but this is my Pete Consigli personal favorite. Um, when Joe was telling the story about when I insulted him, I didn't realize Joe made his bones insulting somebody. And I, not that I made my bones, but I kind of got to, you know, got the cooking thing out of my system uh, because I insulted Joe. And next thing you know, I'm, I got this summer camp job, but uh, when I told him, yeah, you know, I, I could do better. He gives me his credit card. And uh, I said, what's this? And, and actually his exact words were impress us. And now this, this quiet falls over all the summer camp people. And it's like, Ooh, you know, there's like going to be a throwdown here. So I said, okay, what do I do? He says, well, just, you know, impress us. So I said, okay. So I go, first thing I said, so do I have a budget? He goes, no, no budget. So, all right. And then, and then he says this, he goes, you, you couldn't spend all the money that's in that credit card. If you tried, well, that, that was the end of that. I didn't need any more thing. You know, we, we went, it was like supermarket sweepstakes because I had to put my first meal together in four or five hours and we got the carts and we just literally were running down the aisles, pulling stuff off the shelf. We didn't have a shopping list. We got back anyway, we did the first meal. And then I remember he said, uh, that was like uh, on the Sunday, he said, you know, you were able to whip this together so quick. And I said, well, you know, restoration guys, you had an emergency, we took care of it. And he said, well, what happens if we gave you a couple of days to prepare? What could you do? I said, he said, could you cook dinner on Tuesday night for everyone after the seminar? I said, yeah, I could do that. He said, what will you do? I said, well, I'll, 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 I'll do a Sicilian feast. He go, what's that? I said, well, it's like Thanksgiving on steroids. And that, of course, that didn't need any explanation. That was the beginning of the Sicilian night that we had for many years. And when my mom was alive, she worked in the kitchen for many years with this. Anyway, here's my favorite Joe line. About year 10 or year 12 of summer camp, I don't remember what happened, but there was a little banter going on. And Joe's telling a story about uh, somebody asked, you know, how did this whole summer camp, you know, thing start, blah, blah, blah. And Joe tells the story and then he, he makes this comment. He says, you know, Consigli is the only guy that has no budget and can manage to exceed it. Anyway, <laughs> that, 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 got, that got a big laugh. But of course, mo most people don't realize I, I actually was pretty diligent, uh, even though I had no budget. And I, I was able to negotiate, uh, you know, service uh, as part of the deal. And we, we, we wound up getting our own checkout line and everything and then delivering the goods and the whole thing evolved to him building a kitchen. I mean, he tells the story that if he didn't build a kitchen, he probably would have been divorced. He had to get me out of the house. And, uh, <laughs> you know, we, we were running out of space. I mean, there's a lot of other summer camp stories, but, uh, Anyway, that those are just a couple of the early day ones. Uh, anyway, Joe was uh, 
I enjoyed the interview today. There was quite a, you know, a lot of the early history and a lot of that stuff you haven't talked about before. So I thought that was great. And, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a lot of fun. I can't believe that the years passed as quickly. And uh, next year it'll be the 25th. And I guess, like you said, it'll be epic. So you got a lot of people that uh, I, I got to think it's going to sell out earlier than any other summer camp in history. Usually by the 4th of July, they usually sell out or late June, but something tells me this one's going to sell out pretty quick. So uh, got a lot of people are looking forward to it. Yeah, you, know, you got you got at least a half a dozen people that are on this call today that have been long-term summer camp people. And uh, anyway, great interview. And I'll turn it back over to you there, uh, Mr. Radio Joe. And then since this is the uh, last show before you guys take your summer break, uh, any news, uh, Mr. Radio Joe, on uh, what, what we got anything planned for after you guys come back for, after Labor Day when you come back from your summer break? Got anybody booked yet? Yeah, I might have one or two people. As a matter of fact, uh, Dr. Joe is going to rejoin us when we come back. And we're going to talk about uh, moisture control for residential buildings. So, Joe, could you give us a teaser on what we'll be discussing when we come back from our break? Well, how how to build highly energy efficient buildings that don't rot and don't make you sick and don't uh, basically make you broke. So, um, basically... I guess, 45 years of my dealing with stuff. And I thought, well, okay, let's pull it all together. And so that's, 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 that's the plan. And we're looking forward to it. Thanks so much for joining us this week. And uh, we look forward to seeing you again when we come back. And uh, this is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks to this week's guest, Dr. Joe Steebrook, uh, the life and times of the Dean of Building Science. I want to thank the Z-Man, my co-host. John, you got to have faith at the controls, the restoration industry's global watchdog, Pete Consigli. Most importantly, our growing group of loyal listeners and sponsors. We'll be back. Actually, we're going to do a couple flashback shows over the next couple of weeks. So please check those out. They're always good because we pick some of the best. And then we'll be back in um, less than a month with Dr. Joe Steebrook, part two. For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reed saying thanks for listening.